The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. This is our first show for 2015 and a part of the Gift of Exoneration series. Probably worse than being in prison for a crime you didn't commit is going through the roller coaster of three, yes, three trials for a crime you didn't commit. That is what happened to David Cam. And today I'm delighted to have two guests. The first is David Cam. His trial has so many twists and turns, I get dizzy reading about him. Hi, David. Hi, how are you, Francie? I'm great. Thanks for being on the show. Sure, thank you for having me. And I know uh, you're right now in Illinois, and it's really cold there. Well, I'm actually in Indiana, but we're right next to Illinois, and it's really cold here as well. (laughs) So it is cold. (laughs) What's the temperature? Uh, I think it's like negative two with a wind chill uh, well below that, so it's pretty cold. Ouch. Yeah. I won't tell you what California says, but all right. (laughs) And (laughs) the second is private investigator Bill Clutter. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? And I am from Springfield, Illinois, although I am living in Louisville, Kentucky at the moment. You guys are amazing. <laughs> You're all over the place. And so, Bill, how did you get involved in David's case? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I started the Illinois Innocence Project in about 15 years ago, and I got... I was watching the World Series. It was St. Louis and uh, the Texas Rangers in Game 6, and I get a call from my wife who had met uh, Rick Kamen, who was David's attorney from Indianapolis. And she was telling him that I had just completed a bloodstain training with uh, Tom Bevel and uh, worked, you know, that I was involved in the Innocence Project. And... uh, so I got on the phone with Rick, and he was telling me that, you know, that, that it was bloodstain analysis that helped convict David twice, and uh, there was a lot of controversy about uh, about David's case in the bloodstain community, and and uh, and that was the first contact I had, and that was um, you know this fall of 2011, and uh, his okay, attorneys. So, so that was when he's getting ready to go into his third trial. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Don't you wish you'd have been there from the beginning? <laughs> oh, I don't know if I could have handled it emotionally. Yeah. And just, yeah. And, you know, it, and I've been doing this for almost 30 years, and I can tell you that, you know, I've, I've been involved in some, some really 
uh, major wrongful conviction cases, but this one by far uh, is the most uh, compelling case I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, I know you were involved in Rolando Cruz and Alejandro, uh, Alejandro Hernandez. Right. Um, that was very early on in my career. Yeah, those are well-known cases to all of those of us who do um, capital cases and, and uh, have watched that process through what's happening in what's happened in Chicago. Um, so, you know, appreciate your work on wrongful conviction cases, uh, Bill, really. Thank you. Now, I know uh, you also, when you started out, I read that you were hired to serve the Voting Rights Act suit against five commissioners. Right. This was in Abraham Lincoln's hometown, Springfield, Illinois, and the allegation was that uh, blacks were denied representation on the city council because it was elected citywide. And uh, I wound up actually getting elected to the city council when uh, two African Americans joined me on the first uh, uh, new council in 1987. And so that was kind of a historic event in uh, Springfield, Illinois, the home of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And then um, there's a book out, is it, uh, Victims of Justice, that tells of the Cruz and and Hernandez. Right, uh, right. And all that prosecutorial misconduct and police misconduct that went on. Well, and also I was involved in the case of Randy Steido. There was a book written right. about that case by a uh, Illinois State Police lieutenant called uh, Too Politically Sensitive. And, and that is an amazing case. And, and, but, you know, it, it was really David's case that inspired me that, that you know, we need a national project of mm-hmm. private investigators and criminal defense attorneys that investigate innocence. And so... It was uh, coming up on two years ago that I founded a new organization called Investigating Innocence and, and primarily with the, the mission of freeing David Cam. And, uh, and, of course, David and I now are traveling the country and trying to look at other uh, people like, uh, uh, that, that, that are in prison today that may be in and, and, Bill, how do... How do investigators get involved and attorneys get involved in investigating innocence? Is that a membership? How it do you is, work it, The that? concept is a membership, and um, they can go to www.investigatinginnocence.org and join. Become a member for $100 a year. You Perfect. can get a listing on our website. And, uh, and of course, there's 67 innocence projects all throughout the country yeah. that are in need of good private investigators. That's, and Dave and I attended the National Innocence Conference last, last year in Portland, and that's kind of the reoccurring theme is that we really are uh, hurting for good criminal defense investigators. Exactly. And, and, we, and those of us that are involved in this end of the business, so to speak, the cases rise and fall on investigation. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, the attorneys it, can only deal with what we bring them. Well, and to give you an example of that, yes, uh, earlier, uh, just on Tuesday, two days ago, I had a federal death penalty case where the government dismissed murder charges against my client based on, you know, the fact investigation that revealed mm. that there was, you know, there was evidence that was destroyed by a police officer who had been trooper of the year in Kentucky and, and, mm. um, and you know, without that investigation, at the, you know, the attorneys really 
don't have much to work with if, uh, if you don't right. have private investigators out there beating the bushes. Yeah. And um, now you're having a conference in May. Well, we have the, the Innocence Network conference that we'll be attending, and we're inviting those that want to get involved in our organization to attend our, our, our inaugural board meeting and mm-hmm. to participate in the educational programs that the Innocence Network is sponsoring. That'll be in Orlando, Florida. And they can actually go to the Innocence Network website and register for that, uh, for that conference uh, April 30th through May 2nd. Okay. All right. Thank you. And, and the website for that is? Um, Do you know? If you Google Innocence Network, okay. you'll, you'll land on their website. Great. Okay. All right. And then, uh, Dave, uh, you spent 10 years as an Indiana State Trooper. That is correct. Yes, ma'am. And I, now I know you received your department's Medal of Honor for saving a drown- drowning man. Well, I attempted to. Um, they uh, ended up unplugging him the next day, but uh, we did try mm-hmm. to save his life. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, he was still alive, at least, when he got yeah. to the hospital. It, yeah. Yes, ma'am. And then you decided to retire from law enforcement in uh, about year 2000 and that's go to work correct. for your uncle? Yes, ma'am. Matter of so, fact, that's where we're at right now at the office. So You're right now at his office? Yes, at that's the where we're at right now. Yes, ma'am. And, and you're a salesman now and a, and a supervisor, I guess. Well, yeah. Um, in 2000, uh, my position was uh, running one um, segment of the operation, and uh, I did sales and... and um, oversaw the various projects that we had going on as well as other family members and people that work here. And, um, the, I mean, obviously now I can't um, function in the exact role that I did back then simply because it's, it's still very difficult here in the Louisville, southern Indiana metropolitan area uh, mm-hmm. to be me, <laughs> to be quite honest. So yeah. um, I do, uh, I uh, work for the company, I run the shop, have a few guys that work specifically for me um, here in the New Albany, Indiana area, and then I'm also doing sales for the company in the Indianapolis area and further north, which I have to say is going pretty well. So, oh, good. It's a different, a bit different position, but um, still with the, the family company, yes, ma'am. Well, I was, I wondered about how you were doing. We'll get back to that uh, later in the show. Um, now, at that in 2000, life was good. You had, you were making more money than you had been making in a, as a state trooper, and you and your wife Kim had been married right. for what 11 years uh going on 11 yes ma'am about yeah. 10 and a half a little better than that yeah you lived uh you did you own your own home at the time oh we did we had uh built our home in uh, 1994 and um that's where we were residing at the time and um kim was an accountant she worked for a large corporation located in downtown louisville Okay. And um, it was uh, we had uh, a very good life going on for ourselves. I have to say. Yeah, and then you had two beautiful children, Bradley. <laughs> yeah, Bradley was seven. You're gonna make me cry. So, I'm, I'm sorry. If I'm we, sorry. yeah, but um, yes, ma'am. And then uh, your daughter Jill was five. Yeah, that's right. Time. Okay. And and I'm sorry, Dave, to to ask you these questions because I know it has to be painful but um, I know that you had 
had a pickup basketball game at at the local church. Right. Yeah, we played every. Well, we had been playing every Thursday for I don't know four, five, six weeks um, at our church where my uh, uncle was pastor, and a lot of our family went attended there. Okay. And um, it was just a bunch of older guys that would get together and try to get a little exercise. And this is Indiana, and we do play basketball here, so <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, what well, keeps you warm. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you need that when it's you know negative two outside. So exactly right. So um, you came home about uh, about nine twenty-five, nine thirty. Right. Found the garage door open. Yeah, one door was actually open. Kim's door, uh, where her Bronco was parked, was open, and then uh, the door on my side, where I generally parked my uh, work truck, was was um, down. Um, you know, I hit the button, and the door began to open to allow me to enter the garage, and um, that's when I found Kim. And Kim was on the floor, and unfortunately had a gunshot to her head. Uh, yes, ma'am. And then your two kids were in the back of the uh in the back seat of the bronco that's right and um then they were also shot yes ma'am and you you tried to save brad i did yes ma'am you pulled I mean, him ultimately, out yeah ultimately that's what you know if you really wanted to what it boils down to is you know getting in the car and uh, removing bradley um it's how i got the blood transfer on my shirt <clears throat> right that yeah. they thought they and you know they're fake expert said was from high velocity and it was from transfer from Jilly. And um, so, you know, ultimately I spent 13 years in prison for trying to save my son. So that's that's what it comes down to, regardless of what anyone says or wants yeah. to think beyond that. And this, and what the, the expert testified to, and it was turned out to be, uh, well, we'll talk about that expert because he wasn't even really an expert, as it turned out. Right. But what he claimed was it was high-velocity blood spatter from the gunshot. Uh, right, as, as well as a lot of other um, presumptions that he made about the scene itself, and which became elements of the probable cause affidavit, which all turned out to be uh, just totally inaccurate. And as yeah. you said, you know, it wasn't. Uh, the guy himself actually turned out not to be an expert in anything other than uh, being a liar and misrepresenting who he was. That was his name was Robert Stites. Is that the one? Yes, ma'am. That's correct. Okay, he was supposed to be a crime scene reconstructionist and supposed to be a blood expert, and he wasn't either one. No, that he did represent himself to be both, and he testified under oath during the first trial that he was all of those things, and. Um, the prosecutor uh, at the time represented him to be an expert, and the uh, state police officers that were involved in the investigation um, believed him to be uh, this world-renowned expert. So, you know, and you even had the prosecutor during the fir- course of the first trial referring to him as professor. But um, and he wasn't that either. Uh, <laughs> no, no, ma'am, he oh wasn't. He wasn't anything. In fact. <laughs> Uh, his employer, yeah, his employer, who actually was, that what happened was the prosecutor at the time, Stanley Faith, uh, called an individual by the name of Rod Englert, who is pretty well known in the bloodstain pattern analysis world, and asked his friend Rod, they'd worked together before, to come 
um, to Indiana to help work the case. And uh, my understanding of where the conversation went was Mr. Engler said that he wasn't going to be able to come, but that he would send his protege, uh, Rob Stites, to uh, take care of Mr. Faith and work the case and uh, provide whatever assistance they may need. And um, so Stites flew into town. He was uh, treated as this world-renowned expert and um, was basically, along with working along with the prosecutor, they took over the case and conducted the investigation. And everyone believed everything that they said. And ultimately, we would learn during the course of preparing for the second trial that he was a complete fraud. He had never well, had one single hour's training in bloodstain pattern analysis. Well, he had he'd never, never been... Pro- he had never even processed a crime scene, right? No, yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's what you're going to say. He had never. He said the only time he had ever been to a homicide scene before was to just stand guard when he was a police officer in a, a small town. Um, so he had he he had no training, no expertise, no experience. Um, and Englert's defense at this point during the course of the second trial said that he told the prosecutor that he was a photographer in there to just document. But exactly the, the conversation that originally took place between um, Englert and the prosecutor at the time, Stan Faith, we're, um, we're going through some civil litigation now. We're going to find out what actually took place during the course of that conversation, whether or not the prosecutor was told he was a photographer or there, and there to document or that he was an expert. That's yet to be determined, but we will find that out during the course of preparing for the civil litigation. So. And the astonishing part, in, I, I, and I'm still astonished, is that there, were, there was evidence at the crime scene that was completely ignored. Oh, yeah. When they couldn't, uh, what it was was there was a gray hane sweatshirt that was found laying uh, on the garage floor, and it had the name Backbone written inside the collar, and it also had some numbers written on the tag. And in the very beginning, the ISP officers, who I knew, who were colleagues of mine, did everything they could to try to attach that sweatshirt to me or somehow to my family. Hmm. And when they couldn't do that, they simply uh, turned a blind eye to it. And in fact, the lead investigator at the time, a little fellow by the name of Sean Clemens, uh, referred to it as simply as an artifact and said that it had no relevance and as it turned out, it was an article, article of clothing that was owned by the perpetrator, by the man who killed my family. And uh, somehow during the course of committing the crimes, killing Kim and Brad and Jill, his sweatshirt got left behind the scene, at the scene, and, and um, had his DNA. And, okay. Uh, so and his name there. was Charles Boney. Yes, ma'am. And he was a, an ex-felon. Yeah, he was an 11-time convicted felon, and um, almost all of his crimes, he, he would attack women, um, you know, the weak and defenseless, um, you know, which I think represents the coward that, that he was and is. So, and additionally, um, he had a, a shoe and foot fetish. Uh, yes, ma'am, and he's in prison now, and he probably still has it. I'm not sure how that's working out for him, yeah. but... Um, you know, but, yes, ma'am, a lot of his crimes. He was referred to in the Bloomington, Indiana area where Indiana University is located as the Shoe Bandit, and they were, had been looking for him for some time before he was eventually uh, arrested and charged, charged in those crimes. But he would attack women 
wrestled them to the ground and it's still a, a shoe. So. And one of the questions that everybody had from the beginning was why were Kim's shoes on top of the car? Yes, ma'am. The neatly placed on, neatly on top placed. of the Bronco where Kim could not have uh, reached to put them up there. So that was always a question. And then his palm print was also found just inside the door of the van, too? Yeah, it was actually on the um, outside exterior of the Bronco just by the, okay. the door post, you know, where he, where, you know, during the course of our reconstruction, um, uh, pretty much determined that he probably had his left hand placed when he was reaching in to uh, shoot Bradley. Now, um, Dave, what did your attorney do with that finger or that uh, palm print evidence? Well, in the you know we have the course of three trials. In the first trial, you know we actually we found the unknown DNA. Uh, my attorney at the time, Michael McDaniel, sent the sweatshirt to Cellmark and. We had it tested around the collar for you know, try to locate slough cells to get a DNA profile because we weren't satisfied with the work that the Indiana State Police had done. And we did have that profile. Now we used the profile, you know, as part of our defense, saying if you find the person whose DNA this is, who owns this sweatshirt, um, you'll find the killer of Kim and Brad and Jill. Also, the, the, you know, the palm print was there, and that was, you know, an element of our defense saying... You know, there's a good probability if you find the person who, whose palm print this is, it's going to match the DNA, and we're going to have the person that killed Kim and Brad and Jill. But we didn't know who that person was at the time because the DNA profile had not been ran through CODIS. Now, we were told by the prosecutor, Stan Faith, that it had been ran through CODIS, and there wasn't a hit. Mm-hmm. Charles Boney had been in the CODIS system since 1997, so if, in fact... The DNA would have been ran. He would have been identified long before my first trial ever took place. But right. uh, the prosecutor lied to us, and it, in fact, had not been ran, so he wasn't discovered until prior to the second trial in 2005. One of the things I'd like to add is that, you know, just this is really a classic case of tunnel vision where police locked in on a theory that Dave did mm-hmm. this, and then they disregarded right. all the evidence, like the palm print, that mm-hmm. linked to Charles Bonet and the prison issued sweatshirt that had his you know nickname backbone in his DNA and you know had this been an objective investigation without those blinders on mm-hmm. this evidence should have been developed from you know the second day of the investigation right and unfortunately bill as you and i both know this is not an unusual situation no, where the uh, investigative officers may have tunnel vision it's not. And, uh, you know, I had a, a case, one of our exonerations from the Illinois Innocence Project was a woman named Julie Ray, who was convicted based on the same bloodstain expert who convicted David. In fact, they were both convicted in 2002 based on hmm. the testimony of Rod Englert. And in the Julie Ray case, uh, the person that committed that murder of her 10-year-old son in her home as she lay sleeping was a serial killer who was executed in Texas last April. But she spent two and a half years in prison based on the testimony of Rod Engler. And he claimed that he saw evidence of uh, um, uh, cast-off from the knife when no other expert saw this on her nightshirt Mm -hmm. but him. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just... And it makes you wonder how many other cases like David Cam and Julie Ray are out there. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree. And and David, initially, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must be like to sit in a courtroom and have a jury come back with a conviction. I That's beyond my imagination. And the first time, you were sentenced to 195 years. Yes, ma'am, that's correct. Yeah, it's, you- um, I, I mean, I, just because of, uh, during the first trial, the ebb and flow of things and the evidence that was allowed in that shouldn't have been, which ultimately resulted in the reversal by the appellate court here in the state of Indiana. You know, because of all of those elements of that trial, I really wasn't surprised but that the jury came back guilty because it was just so unfair um, mm-hmm. that, you know, I had already started trying to mentally prepare myself for for hearing the guilty verdict, but that didn't make it, you know, uh, any less devastating. It obviously right. was, but um, I, during the course of the first trial, I, as we neared the end, I wasn't feeling very uh, hopeful mm-hmm. because of the inadmissible evidence that had been allowed in by the judge. So, Well, and not only that, but you knew that... Well, you, you knew that it wasn't properly investigated. You, I mean... You're in a different situation, Dave, because you have the background as a state trooper, but you right. know how crime scenes should be investigated. So you knew it was done wrongly to begin with, and then you, and then you knew the prosecutor was setting you up as well with his own involvement in prosecutorial misconduct. Right. Well, to say it was frustrating, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there just aren't words to describe, you know, and and. The year and a half, two years preparing for the first trial, I mean, um, I had complete um, uh, discovery myself that I, you know, spent every waking moment of the day going through and going over and, you know, in my own mind trying to rationalize how they could, well, I'm sorry, I'm just going to call it what it is, so stupid. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then to have the evidence that, you know, knowing that I was innocent and knowing that you have these alien objects, uh, they're in the scene, which would ultimately, you know, lead the, to the perpetrator. And for them to be ignored, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it was just everything I could do to, uh, you know, not go crazy. Because, you know, there's nothing I could do about it other than, you know, let things run its course. But it was just, again, to say it was frustrating was just, you know, there just aren't words to describe the situation that I was in and the frustration that went along with it. And and Dave, was the investigating, the lead detective, Sean Clemens, was he a friend of yours before this came up? Well, I had actually, I had known Sean since he was about three years old. Mm. Um, he's four or four or five years younger than me. Um, our families were very good friends, and I, in fact, helped Sean get on the department when he uh, eventually joined in the early 90s. So we knew each other well. Um, uh. I wouldn't say that we were great friends or anything, but we were colleagues. We worked together. Um, so, But, uh, you know, all of the investigators that were involved in the case were friends of mine and colleagues and people that I, you know, Prior to this situation, I respected. And what if, I, what I, if feeling of betrayal? And, and that's that, you know that's exactly it, Francie. I mean, that's the yeah. word. It's, yeah, it was just complete betrayal. Because Sean uh, himself made 
um, a number of false a- assertions on his probable cause affidavit. Well, the number being everything. Everything yeah. in everything in the probable cause affidavit, other than the fact that Kim and Brad and Joe were murdered, was inaccurate. There was nothing on the PC affidavit that was correct. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and a lot of it goes back to the uh, expert who, in fact, wasn't. And they just, right. you know, I think they they were obligated to, to, you know, use some due diligence. And finding out who this person was that was coming in and taking over this crime scene and working with the prosecutor, but no effort was made whatsoever to determine whether or not he was an expert or not. They just uh, treated him as, you know, they believed that he was based upon what the prosecutor told them, which is, you know, somewhat of a letdown from my perspective on, uh, you know, their obligation to at least. You know, in any case, but I was their friend. You would think they would want to know for sure that this person knew what they were talking about, but they just accepted it and rolled with it. And again, as as it turned out, everything that he said was inaccurate. And we told them all along the way that it was, you know, they were wrong and uh, their conclusions were wrong, but mm-hmm. they just wouldn't listen. Yeah. And Bill, this is a huge lesson for people that work on the defense end to check the experts out, isn't it? Oh, it, it really is. I mean, if there would have been some due diligence on Rob Stites prior to mm. the first trial, uh, you know, a lot of this could have been exposed earlier. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when you, ha- you, know, you have something like this and, the, and it just seems like it's rolling down the hill and you can't even stop it, so maybe they would have come up with something else, you know, to cover yeah. themselves. I don't know. It's hard to know. Yeah. Uh, because the prosecutor was so involved in um, getting this conviction at any means necessary. These are difficult cases. I mean, even, you know, I mean, Dave's case is a great example where, you know, even by this time of the second trial, they had known that Bonet was the, was the perpetrator. They had identified him. But... You know, uh, juries don't always get it right, and, you know, you really need a perfect, you know, uh, it's like bowling. You almost need a perfect game to, to, to get an acquittal yeah, on a case right. like this. And, okay, so let's talk about Bonet, because once they finally zeroed in on him and found him and talked to him, tell, tell us what happened with that. It's just crazy. Uh, well, once they did locate him... Um, the the second prosecutor, Keith Henderson, and the second set of investigators, I mean, they had already came out and said that they were going to recharge me and that the one person committed this crime and that it was David Cam, blah, 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 blah. So Boney wasn't discovered until about three months after that point in time, after I'd returned back after the appellate court had sent it back to the trial court level. And so they had already made these statements. So once they found him... Uh, they went out of their way to manipulate the situation to whether not would not only serve Boney, but would serve them in their purpose, which was mm-hmm. to uh, continue to be able to uh, represent themselves as being ethical and honest people who were trying to do the right thing, vis-a-vis you know charging and pursuing me, which. Um, they were willing to do it at any cost. So when you sit and you go through the 
interviews of Boney with the uh, two investigators, it's, I mean, they'd feed him a story. I mean, if, if he gets off track, they redirected him, mm-hmm. and they inferred things that he picked up on, and he crafted and created a story that included the, the things that they were hinting to him that he should. If he was off on a timeline, they would say something like, well, now, don't you mean X, Y, and Z opposed to A, B, and C? And he would pick up on that, and, 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 this, and this went on for hours and hours and hours. And eventually, you know, what happens is after days of uh, uh, interviews and, and so on, they initially came out in, in a television interview and said, Boney's story checks out, that he had donated his uh, prison sweatshirt to Salvation Army and somehow wound up at David Kim's house in this crime scene. Well, after that, you know, having said something like that, then they um, they did match the palm print to him. And, you know, at that point in time, they knew, you know, they couldn't stick with that story and believing his Salvation Army story. So they simply helped him manipulate things to a story that uh, caused him to implicate me as having killed my family. Yeah. And, and yeah. he painted himself as a patsy and uh, they went along with that, you know, more than willingly. They, uh, you know, they had their own agenda at that point in time because they just didn't want to admit that they were wrong about having accused me. And that's what right. it comes down to. They were more concerned with protecting themselves and the perception that people have of our justice system in this country mm-hmm. and, and of the elected uh, prosecutor and any state police. They were more concerned with protecting that than doing the right thing and pursuing yeah. justice for Kim and Brad and Jill. Yeah. Well, and Detective Wilkinson, I read that he told Boney that he was that he was an opportunist, opportunist I'm reading whose best scenario is to be a witness. Exactly. I mean, what what come on. I mean, what's he telling right. the guy? And then Take he this said this opportunity. Yeah, he's telling you. Yeah. And then he said that you had an alibi which was quote, going to be a problem, unquote. Right. So, and then, and then, um, who is Wayne Kessinger? He, well, who is Wayne Kessinger? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was, at the time, he was an investigator who worked for the prosecutor. He was a retired okay. police officer from Louisville Metro. But um, he was working as an investigator for the prosecutor prior to the second trial. And he suggested to Boney, or Boney, or whatever his name is, that the gun was dirty and or untraceable and that he might have had it wrapped up in his sweatshirt and gave right. it to you. Right. Now, Boney, he adopted that, and it was suggested to him by Kessinger. And uh, during the third trial, Boney testified, and we confronted him with that, and he said, yes, that it was suggested to him. Um, by the investigators, and he picked up on that, and they were working together in tandem to create a story that explained everything away. So at first, Boney said he wasn't involved, that he got rid of his sweatshirt after he got out of prison and with the Salvation Army, and then when they nailed him down with the palm print, he said... Oh well, yeah. Then I was uh, I was there with David Cam, and we conspired together to commit this murder, and it just 
keeps going on and on. Yeah, and there are a whole lot of, I mean, it's story after story. I mean, it's constantly changed, was evolving uh, as, you know, information it was progressing forward during the course of the the interviews and so on. It just, it, it was change after change after change, and it eventually got to a point where uh, he said, yes, I was there, but David Cam was there too. Yeah. You know, and then as he gets into these, trying to explain the minutia of the evidence against him and, you know, going back to what you mentioned earlier about the shoes being placed atop Kim's car. Mm-hmm. He said I, that I had uh, uh, tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed. And uh, that, and I consider I was a police officer for 10 and a half years. I was on a SWAT team for six years. And they asked him, well, what did he do when the gun jammed? And he said, well, nothing. He just dropped his hand down this side and turned around and started walking the house. Now, I could clear a jammed semi-automatic weapon in about two and a half seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and any trained police officer could, but he, he makes no mention of that. And he says that I was going back into the house, and he decided at that point in time to pursue me. And that during the course of his trying to catch up to me, he went through the crime scene, and he tripped over Kim's shoes. He says Kim's shoes were laying on the floor and that he tripped on them. And that that's when he fell and he scraped his knees. And that at that point in time, he decided to pick Kim's shoes up and place them neatly on the roof of her car. Now, during the course of him telling that story, you know, he was explaining away a lot of things. For one, his... um, Possibly his DNA being on Kim's shoes, mm-hmm. where they were placed, and you know we know uh, that Kim fought. You know she was beat up, and Boney had injuries to his his legs and knees that were scraped up and so on. That had to have been occurred during the course of fighting with Kim, who was trying to defend the kids. I believe that with all my heart. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so his explanation also. You know, was trying to explain why his knees were cut up and so on. So, you know, he, he as Wilkerson said, he's an opportunist, and he was taking every opportunity which they were giving him to try to explain away his being there at my house. So instead of charging Charles Boney with uh, the murder, they ended up charging both of you with murder and conspiracy. Yes, so ma'am, now, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then then the jailhouse informants come up and we've got to take a break this is okay. this is too just too much uh, we'll be right back we'll be right back with bill cutter private investigator and david cam who has stood trial three times for a murder he didn't commit or three murders he didn't commit we'll be right back The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. So, David uh, and Bill, before the break, uh, we were just getting ready to talk about the jailhouse informants. Right. And, you know, often in, in high-profile cases, but not always just high-profile. And, of course, this one is a classic example, example of a high-profile case. It's all over the news. Um, you know, people in jail read the newspapers. They can build up uh, some kind of a story that you confess to them uh, that you had committed the murders. Um, and two of them, a guy named Hatton, James Hatton, uh-huh. and a guy named um, Jeremy Bullock. Bullock, right. Claimed that you confessed to them. Right. And they're very, uh, this, that's what they do, and that happens a lot in the prison system. In fact, I will tell you that we know that Bullock right now has written at least he's he, he's been uh, he was eventually let go they let him out early and he's back in incarcerated in jail in northern Indiana right now facing some pretty serious charges and during the course of the past few months he's written at least eight letters is my understanding to various prosecutors about cases uh, with individuals he's now incarcerated with. Uh, saying that they all confessed to him, and in fact, there's a pretty serious um, murder case up there. I believe it's in Johnson County, Indiana, that he again says this person confessed to him. So that's what they do. That's uh, mm-hmm. right. Um, you know, it's just uh, a cycle of you know committing crimes, getting incarcerated, and then making up lies to you know. And and both of them got deals of something uh yes they did they were both released early and it's my understanding they both have 
reviolated. So, you know, there you go. But prosecutors don't care. Well, is is know. Hatton still a fugitive, or is has he been? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not what his sure what his status is at this point in time. He may still be incarcerated. I'm 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 not sure, but I believe they're both incarcerated for one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Amazing, and and they they weren't the only ones that tried to. Or am I wrong about that? Were there were there others that tried to say you confessed to them, or did they leave it at that? No, there was at least one more that testified in the second trial. There were three that all said that I uh, confessed to them. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure there were others. I know there were some at the county the county jail level that tried to get on the case. Uh-huh. You uh-huh. know, I guess, you know, I'm just so dumb that I just went around telling all these people you know, it's just it's so stupid. It really is. And the fact really, that prosecutors go for that, you know, I think it shows desperation. It does. Uh, on the part of the prosecutors to get a conviction at any cost. And I think whenever you see jailhouse informants used in a case, I think it probably shows the strength of the state's case. Mm-hmm. Because or, that's or lack pretty, of it. Yeah, that's, or, the, right, that's, that's thinking right. pretty low at that point, you know, when... You know, these are the very the, the same people that these prosecutors put in jail and would say nothing good about under any other circumstance. But here now, all of a sudden, when they can, it can benefit them, them being the prosecutors. You know, they put these people on the stand and mm-hmm. present them to be, mm-hmm. you know, trustworthy and honest in this, you know, isolated situation. And it's just, it's, it's really absurd. Well, it is, and you know, it's unfortunate because they're—it's like investigators. There's so many good investigators, but one bad apple taints all of us. And it's the same thing with prosecutors and detectives. You know, there's so many good detectives, police officers, prosecutors out there, but you have cases like the ones we've been talking about, and that challenges our thinking for every cat case. Right. Well, you know. it's just I don't. Unfortunately, you know, I I still have a little bit of that blue blood in me. <laughs> I wish yeah. I could. I wish, yeah, I do, and I I wish I could get rid of it. Uh, you know, but I was a Indiana State Trooper for ten and a half years, and it was a mm-hmm. big part of me. Mm-hmm. And but as far as the individuals, whenever I see something on the news down here in Southern Indiana, out of the post where I worked, I just. You know, I have such a degree of skepticism when I see it that, um, you know, it always creates doubt in my mind whether or not they've got it right. Mm-hmm. But as far as the department as a whole, you know, I, <laughs> I I wish that I had no use for any of them, but it's hard. You know, oh, even yeah. today when I see the, the, the troops and the cars on the road, you know, it's just, I, it's kind of like a... Uh, being jilted by a girlfriend, you know, it's like being broken hearted because these people in the department turned their back on me. So yeah. it's complicated. <laughs> well, and and I guess that brings me back to uh, something you said earlier about what's going on in your life now. You're struggling because you have you're such a recognizable name, right? And probably face as well, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, I still live in Southern Indiana. Um, um, more of necessity than anything else at this point. Um, 
you know, if I go to the grocery store, I go across the river to Louisville. Um, and even over there, you know, people always recognize me. And I have to say, I haven't had one negative interaction with anyone since I've been home, which has been about 14 months now. But I, I always, almost routinely, have positive interaction with people who want to hug me and shake my hand and congratulate me and so on. But, you know, there's I know there are the people out there that have the negative feelings and the bad feelings and... Mm-hmm. They don't say anything, but would probably wish they had the guts too, and that's hard. You know, it breaks my heart. You know, it's 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 a hard thing to deal with, and I'm you know I really struggle even now uh, with that. It's um, it's you a probably difficult know, thing. You're probably very aware that people are looking at you and know who you are. When oh you yeah, go into I mean, a, a business, sure. yeah. right? You get a lot of double takes and. Those sorts yeah. of things, but so it's 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 difficult. It's not easy to be me right now. I'll tell you here, especially in Southern Indiana. But like I said, I'm here out of necessity as much as anything else. And, you know, until something changes, this is where yeah. I'll be. And and what about Kim's parents? Do they still believe you were responsible? Well, as yeah, I guess so. You know, at least publicly, that's what they still. Um, how they declare themselves at this point and it's unfortunate and that's heartbreaking as well but um mm-hmm. you know it is what it is and i can't change it i've tried to reach out you know and, and made statements publicly that i wish we could you know talk about this at least but there's no willingness on their part so i've just accepted uh things to be as they are which are are not good but it is what it is well, Bill, um, I'm sorry, uh, Dave. You were you were fortunate, and then you had a very supportive family that stood behind you, right, through thick and thin. Yeah. And well, thank God. You know, at the basketball game, you know, my uncle, who ultimately is next to Jesus Christ Himself, is my savior. <laughs> and. Yeah. Uh, you know, in my entire family, my uncle, he was there, and then three or four of my other cousins and a cousin-in-law, well, they were playing basketball with me, so it's not like there was any room for doubt. You know, right. they knew where I was at the time. So, you know, and then I, I have my family, uh, I think it's uh, just uh, going back generationally, it's, you know, a lot of character and integrity, and uh, that really uh, showed itself during the course of this and and still now you know we walk with our heads up and we know you know we've done the right thing and fought the good fight and um just really blessed to have the family that i do and i know that your uncle um supported most of your attorney fees and your didn't your mom and dad mortgage their house as well uh, they still have a six-figure uh, second mortgage on the yeah. home and they're in their 80s now you know that'll never be paid off um, as far as my uncle Sam um, Lockhart, you know it's I you know the the dollar figures I, you know it's I think Sam would just say you know we did what we had to do. That's uh, extraordinary, though. Yeah, it is a pretty re- remarkable, remarkable person. I tell you, they uh, the Lord broke the mold when they when they made Sam. Yeah, and and Bill, what we usually have to to address often is somebody that's indigent that doesn't have a family that can uh, pay attorney's fees right and right. 
and that seems to be, I, it was really uh, stood out to me actually when reading through uh, David's case is that often appeals take years and years to, to come back down. Uh, many more years than what has happened with Dave's case. And because he was able to retain an attorney and pursue that right away made a huge difference. It, it made a huge difference. But, you know, the thing that's also very unique about Dave's case is that he prevailed on his direct appeal both times. I mean, right. very rarely does that happen with these wrongful conviction cases. Generally, the conviction gets affirmed by the reviewing courts, and mm-hmm. you have to, you know, fight this out in, in post-conviction and try to develop newly discovered evidence. And that's really what makes Dave's case so unique is that the reviewing courts really um, were able to see how unfair of a trial he received at his first trial and then his second trial. And finally, the third trial was the fairest of them all. And, of course, the jury was very quick in their uh, acquittal of Dave. Yeah. And I and certainly the only uh, the only appeal I read was the the first one, but they just slammed the judge for allowing uh, a lot of, a lot of what he allowed to come in. Right, right. Well, you know, and one of the things that really stands, I mean, this this case is really a lesson that there needs to be more conviction integrity units, either on a state level, um, in some jurisdictions, like in. Um, in Dallas County and in uh, New York, they have conviction ut- uh, conviction integrity right. units within the prosecutor's office right. that really does try to objectively look at cases like this. Had that been done in Dave's case, I don't think he would have sat 13 years in prison. I mean, if right. this had been presented to that type of uh, prosecutorial body, a conviction integrity unit, uh, he would have been out much sooner. And that's a fairly new concept. We we have one in the county that I work in and uh, the Santa Clara University Innocence Project in Santa Clara County, um, Silicon Valley has one as well now. Uh, very important. Very important. Well, and in, in this edition of PI Magazine, I wrote about uh, one of our other exonerees, Jonathan Fleming, who was exonerated based on the work of uh, two private investigators, Bob Ron and and Kim Mm -hmm. Anklin, who are regional directors. Exactly. Um, And they worked with a conviction integrity unit to discover um, a a receipt that had been in Jonathan Fleming's pocket when he was arrested in 1989 that proved that he was in Disney World vacationing with his family. And it, you know, but for the conviction integrity unit opening the doors of that evidence, uh, Jonathan Fleming would still be in prison today. Right, right. And you're right, had somebody been, gotten involved in this case, it's so, it is so blatant. Um, it's, it, and, you, and you can't bl- blame the jury because they can only deal with the evidence they have in front of them, not all right. the extra stuff that we often know about when we're working on a case. Right, right. And, you know, they're presented with so-called science, which, mm-hmm. you know, when I was you know, doing my bloodstain training. It's kind of ironic before I was contacted is that I was uh, taught by Tom Bevel on on his 40-hour course, and he became one of the experts against David. And, you know, it was mentioned that the David Cam case had given a black eye to the profession because there's all these (laughs) differing opinions about, you know, this this interpretation of eight tiny dots of blood on a T-shirt. 
and much of the bloodstain community has lined up with David Cam right. uh, yeah. on this, and uh, and it was kind of eye opening. You know, you learned that the first use of bloodstain evidence was, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. on an actual innocence case, the Sam Shepard exactly. case out of uh, Ohio that right. made uh, F. Lee Bailey famous, and then you know, eight months later, I get contacted to to work right. with uh, the, the the attorneys on this issue. I mean, it's just a uh, this case really does stand out, and yeah. you know, people can visit our website to get more information. Or, you know, Bill, can... I have to interrupt. We are way at the end of our hour here. Thank you so, David. Thank you so much sure, uh, for you. being thank here. You. Thank, thank you for, for sharing us. your story. Thank you so much. And thanks, Bill, thank thanks. you for the excellent work you do. It's so important. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing our work. So, thank you for having us. And for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Bill Clutter. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.